there have been points in my life, there have been points in my life where I have realized that I am not enough. When we launched Generations Community Church, I knew full well I am not enough. I do not preach good enough. I do not have enough leadership. And I can't, one is too small a number to do anything significant in Nick Vegas. <laughs> I knew. When I married Jenny, I knew in that moment, I may have been a young buck of 20 years of age, but I was smart enough to know that loving her well over a lifetime, I needed help. I needed lots of help. And then we had kids, and you have this kid, and you're holding this little baby. I knew for each one of my children, and I prayed, God, I do not want to mess this up. I do not want to mess this up so bad they're in counseling the rest of their lives. And, you know, okay? I felt it. I knew. I knew I was not enough. For those of you that are younger, you're at a stage of life where you're trying to figure out if you're in high school or middle school or maybe even college, can I do this? Am I capable? And I'm not talking about that exactly. But when you get older, you will realize that sometimes you're your own worst enemy. Sometimes you actually need help saving you from yourself. You're going to run into it. It's like the lady, she was engaged. It was their wedding day, and he did not show up. He left her on the altar. And she spends two years with her tail between her legs. And the third year after that, she meets somebody. But in the context of the relationship, she's got this fear inside of her. He's going to leave me. He's not. He's going to leave me. And because of that fear that's in her, she does things, and he's, he bolts. And then the next guy, same thing, he bolts. The guy after that, and you, you're like, honey, you are your own worst enemy. Stop it. Or it's like the guy, the young buck, whose dad was verbally abusive, told him all the time, what are you, an idiot? You moron? You will never amount to anything. And so he took that and he put it on the inside of him. He put it on the inside and boy, he lived up to it. He flunked out. Of th- he didn't finish high school. He gets a job and because he's mad, he lets it lay at his boss and he gets fired. And then he has another job and he gets fired. And you know, you're looking at him and you're like, You don't even need Satan. Like, you are your own worst enemy. You're going to do yourself in before the devil even gets a chance, buddy. I mean, you know, we humans need help. We humans need help. That's the picture of the human condition that the Bible presents. That we're sinners. We're sinners. We're selfish. We have this tendency to walk away from God and God's ways. And that sin and rebellion brings about brokenness and death in our lives. Into that context, the earliest Christians brought the gospel, the good news. And that's what we've been talking about at Generations. All right. And so by way of review, or for those of you just tuning in, I want to cover the last couple of Sundays. And they'll put this first word up there, which is euangelion. It's the Greek word for gospel, euangelion. It simply means good news. And if you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, I said the earliest Christians, when they went around from town to town and they were sharing this gospel for them, it was news. Something happened that you needed to know about. God has done something amazing. You got to hear this. You got you to get this. You need to get in on what God is doing. And then last week, I wanted you to see that the first part of what the gospel is about is the arrival of God's kingdom. All throughout the Old Testament, the prophets 
The day of the Lord is coming. Someone from the line of David will come, the Messiah, the promised one, the true king, the right king. And when he comes, God's kingdom will burst forth in a way that it's not before. And so when Jesus is preaching, remember, he says often in story form, the kingdom of God is like, if you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you've come across these things. The kingdom of God is like a lost coin. It's like two sons. It's like a mustard seed. And he gives all these stories because he wants you to know the kingdom of God. And, and he says something different from John the Baptist. John the Baptist said the kingdom of God is at hand. It's about to happen. But Jesus says the kingdom of God is among you. Why? Because the king is among you. All right, so that brings us to where we are today. And today, I simply want you to know that the second part of what the gospel is about is it's about Jesus. And you're like, that's a third grade Sunday school answer, Pastor Max. I already knew that. Oh, really? Really? See, here's what my, my contention. I think that we have lost the potency of the gospel. When I'm out and about in the community and I talk to wonderful Americans... And, and I ask them about God and Jesus and the afterlife. And, and I get into these kind of conversations. I really have come to believe that the gospel has lost its potency in America. It's kind of like the person who decides to take antibiotics all the time because they're a bit of a you know, hypochondriac or whatever that word is that they're always afraid they're sick. So I need antibiotics, I need antibiotics. And then about halfway through or three quarters of the way through, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm well enough. And they don't finish the dosage. And they do this time after time after time. And then five or ten years later, they get a serious infection. Only now antibiotics don't work because the antibiotics have lost their potency in their body. I think that's happened to us Americans. I really do. Um, and I say that because of the overwhelm- what the overwhelming majority of Americans have to say about God, the afterlife, and what pleases God. So... If, if you'll allow me, I want, to, uh, I want to share with you a couple of questions that this guy named Dr. Barnhouse developed years ago about how the afterlife works. And so if you'll get to the next, uh, my, my question, my first question up there. So Dr. Barnhouse was this guy, and it was propagated by a man named R.C. Sproul. So even though I'm not Calvinist, you know, I read them, okay? The first question is simply this, right? Have you come to a place where you know for sure where you'll go, what will happen after you die? So, in other words, when I talk to Americans and I say, so, this God thing, most Americans, most that I meet go, oh, yeah, I believe in God. And I'll go, oh, well, what about Jesus? And they go, oh, yeah, Jesus, totally. Hmm?" I'm like, well, you know, who is Jesus? Oh, Jesus is God. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And I'll ask him, well, do you believe in an afterlife? And again, this is most Americans. Most Americans will say to me, oh, yeah, I believe in an afterlife. Heaven, hell, whatever that is, I believe in an afterlife. Oh, yeah, this life isn't all there is. And, and so when, I, when that question comes into play, have you come to a place where you know for sure what will happen when you die? Most of them, the answer to that question is, well, I hope, I hope I'll end up in heaven. And they kind of smile sheepishly, right? The second question is like it. And if they'll put that second question up here. The second question Dr. Barnhouse posed is simply this. Suppose later tonight you meet your end. I always hear that part and I think of a really robust game of mafia, you know, where, all right, everybody close your eyes. (laughs) Okay. But 
in reality, suppose later tonight you meet your end, which means you die. And you face God himself who asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? So, again, these two questions, again, most Americans, when they're asking and, and, and thinking through those two questions, they, they say things like, well, I, I hope I'm going to heaven. Or and, and in this question, suppose God, God asks, why should I let you in? They, they say, well, you know, I've tried. I've tried to live a good life. You know, I, I haven't done everything that I need to do, but, you know, I'm, I haven't killed anyone. Usually murder or something like that's, you know, the worst possible thing. So, and, and they'll go on and on with those things. And so what they're saying is, my acceptability with God is based entirely on my performance. And I hope I've performed well enough that God goes, Whew, you made it, come on in. All right? That's what they're saying. And most Americans actually believe this is how this works. And, and I want to tell you about a young man I sat with, was it four or five years ago, up in a restaurant in Lexington. So let me tell you about a conversation I had with him. I'll call him Dennis because you might know who he is. So Dennis and I are in this restaurant in Lexington, and we're talking about this very thing. And I say to him, Dennis, do you believe in God? Oh, yes, Bax, I believe in God. God is so real. Really? Oh, yeah. And he gives me some stories. And I'm like, what about Jesus? Oh, Jesus is so God, Max. Are you kidding me? And he goes on, and I'm like, well, do you believe in an afterlife, Dennis? And he says, well, yes, absolutely. Heaven, hell, the whole nine yards. And I'm like, it's 20, you know, it was like 2010 or something at the time ago. It's 2010, you really believe in hell? I mean, who believes in that anymore? And he goes, oh, that's definitely, yeah, I totally do. I do too, by the way, but just in case, okay? So moving along, right, I say to him, well, so tell me how that works. How do you, you know, how does it all work out and shake out with God? And then how do you get where you want to go? I mean, how does it work? And he kind of folds his arm and he looks incredulous at me and he's like, you're a pastor, you're supposed to know this. And I'm like, well, I know, I know what I know. I just want to know what you, you know, what you think. How does it work? You know, explain it to me like I'm an idiot. And then he had this look of, well, that's not going to be that hard. And so, <laughs> so then he proceeds to, to explain to me how it works. And he goes, well, well, uh, when, there's some things you got to do. I'm like, okay, well, you know, what are those things? Well, you got to go to church. Oh, okay, what? Well, you know, that seems pretty good. I'm a pastor in a church. I love it when people come. You know, it's kind of not bad, all right? What else? And he goes, well, you know, you, you got to pray and read your Bible. And, and I'm like, okay, well, those seem like good things. Well, yeah, and, and you, and you got to share your faith and you got to give money. I'm like, okay, well, those seem like good things. Anything else? And he goes, I, you know, I think there are, but I'm not real sure. I, but I think those are the big ones. And I go, oh, okay. And so I look at him, sensing where we are in the conversation, and I say, Dennis, you have been to Generations three times in the last year. Are you going somewhere else that I don't know about? And this look of shock comes on his face, and he's like, well, no. And I said, well, are you you giving money somewhere? I mean, it's not Generations. Where is it? Where's your money going? Well, you know... I'm going to get to that. <laughs> I'm, re- I'm just not in a point right now. I'm like, okay, you must be praying and reading your Bible and sharing your faith like a banshee. Way to go, Dennis, you dog. His shoulders slump. He all, I mean, his whole demeanor changes, and he's now looking at the ground, and he says, Pastor Max, I don't do any of those things. And I go, 
whoa, boy, you're in a, you're in a tough spot. And I actually happened to know at the time he was dating this, this thing, okay, and they were in love, and I happened to know her too, and so I decided to go for the jugular. So you have to forgive me. This is just my nature. I couldn't help it. And I go, Dennis, I know your girlfriend, and I'm just going to go out on a limb, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to suggest you guys are doing things that if your mom found out, she'd be furious, and that you're probably half ashamed of right now. Eyes get really big, and I go, so you're not doing the things that you're supposed to do to get into heaven. You're doing things you know you're not supposed to do that would make you not get into heaven. You are so going to hell, buddy. <laughs> In a restaurant. <laughs> In Lexington. So at, at this point, he is just, he is crushed. I mean, because he's, you know, he's like, yeah, yeah, that's how it works. I'm, I'm, I'm hosed. He had another word, but, you know. <laughs> so I said, I said to him at that point, I said, look, I, I happen to have, I happen to have it on good authority that that's not how it works. What do you mean? I said, that's not how it works. Would you like to hear how it actually works? Yeah. So I shared with him what I'm going to share with you, and I actually shared it with a fellow a week ago who also was like, this is amazing. Yes. You know, and he said yes to God. Okay. So if, they'll, if you'll put my Romans verses up there, this is something Christians have used a long time. I've never shared them here at Generations, but I figured at Christmas, this is important, and I want you to know these things. Okay. So... The first verse comes from Romans 3.23. And I'll see if I can get to all these places in my paper Bible because I'm old-fashioned like that. Okay, 3.23. But now God has shown us... Yeah. No, 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 no. 3.23. For everyone has sinned. There we go. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Okay? So, very first thing. You're not doing everything you should do, and you're doing things that you shouldn't do. And if there's somebody that's messing up the God-man relationship, it's not God, it's us. That's the one Christian doctrine usually I never have to convince people of. The brokenness of the world, the selfishness of people. Most people are like, yeah, preach it. <laughs> and could you talk to my boss or my wife or my husband? Okay, so Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23 says this. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, when you're sinning, when you're doing all that stuff you shouldn't do, death, brokenness, yeah, you're just getting what you deserve. Sorry about your luck. Okay? But what's the, what's the word used for what God and life is? What's the word used there? Gift. Gift. Isn't that an interesting word? That is the strangest thing. That should not be in the Bible. All right, let's keep going. Romans 5, 8 Romans 5, 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And then Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What? Confessing? Believing? For it is by believing, verse 10, in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. And then in 1 John, all the way toward the back of your Bible, 1 John 5, 11, and 12, and this is what God has testified. He has given, there's that word again, us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son, God's Son, does not have life. Believing, gospel, are you picking up on some themes now? So, like my friend Dennis, performance is not what does it with God. That's why the earliest Christians called their message the gospel, the good news. Because it's not based on what you do or don't do. It's based on Jesus. All right? And we see that very clearly in the life of Mary. So if you brought a Bible, you're welcome to open it to Luke chapter 1. I like Mary's side of the story. If you want Joseph's side of the story, read Matthew. You can get his perspective in Matthew. But Mary's is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, the book of Luke. And I love her side. So let me read a little bit, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. And you already heard part of it from Jamin. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think about what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign, there's that rule again, he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. Now Mary is betrothed. And in this culture, betrothal was the first part of a two-part process that was marriage. What would happen is a boy and a girl boom, their families would be like, this is good. This is a good match. And so the guy's family would pay the girl's family a bride price. And that bride price money would do two things. It would pay for the wedding celebration, which would last not a day, but a week. Try put up your relatives for a whole week and deal with them for seven days straight, half drunk. (laughs) Right. Uh Uh-huh. So seven days, okay? Seven days. The other thing that that money did is that it was kind of a guarantee to the bride's family in case the groom decided he wasn't satisfied with the bride. If the groom wasn't satisfied, he could divorce her. And I know some of you are like, I thought divorce came around in the 1970s. No, it actually goes back much farther, okay? Much, much farther, all the way to the first century. So if the guy wasn't happy, he would just divorce her outright. So a betrothal was a binding contract between those two families, and, and it would be anywhere from a few months before the wedding date to as long as a year before the wedding date. One thing was a definite no-no about betrothal time period, and that was you could not consummate the relationship. Now, you may have needed a birds and bees talk from mom and dad or eighth grade health class to know what that is, but that means sex, okay, so... No sex during the betrothal. If a betrothed bride turned up pregnant, everybody was unhappy. Everybody was unhappy. So you kind of get the sense now of why Mary is confused and disturbed (laughs) at this news. And why at the end she says, how can this happen? I'm a virgin. In that statement she's saying, I haven't had sex with Joseph And I'm not going to do it until it's the wedding day. So how are you going to pull this off? What are you talking about, Willis? Okay? 
right? That's a statement of faith in her part of, I'm not going to cross this line. So now we know from Matthew's account that when Joseph found this out, he was hurt. He was hurt. He assumed, you've, you've done, you've cheated on me. Now, he cared for her, obviously, because the option open to men in that culture at that time was, she's an adulterer, stone her, stone her. So he could have done the whole bring out the town people and the really crazy people that love stonings, and there would have been a crowd, and he could have had her stoned to death. But he doesn't do that. He, he resolves that he's going to quietly divorce her. Clearly, he cares about Mary. What happens an angel appears to him, says, well, hey, this is God. Leave it alone. Don't touch it. This is God. And he believes, and he decides to stick it out with Mary. And so we pick it up versus, what is it, Luke 2, uh, no, Luke 1, verse 35 and following. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to, uh, people used to say she was barren, but now she's in her sixth month. Nothing is impossible with God. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And the angel left her. I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. There it is. Faith. Faith in a nutshell. Faith in a nutshell is simply having the confidence to believe that God will do what he's promised. And we've seen some big promises in the last few minutes, haven't we, about what God promises, about what constitutes living forever. And Mary displays faith in that context. Let me ask you a question. What did Mary bring to the table? Or even, a little bit more specifically, could Mary, by a sheer act of her will, make herself pregnant on her own? No. She'd at least need a fella. <laughs> she could not make herself pregnant on her own. She, and in a sense, she brought nothing to the table. God's gift to her, Jesus, see, you see these words coming up again, right? Is Jesus, whose name means God saves, all right? She goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth, that's verses 39 and following. A few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. What a powerful powerful statement faith right there in the life of mary before jesus is ever born see we have good news gang we have good news god's kingdom has arrived and the king has come 
And we have a gospel, a message that the whole world needs to hear. Here's the thing. Jesus didn't just parachute in at the last minute and then walk up to the cross and get nailed on there, right? We, yes. Did Jesus die for us and bear the consequences of our sin? Yes, but he lived for us. He was born in that stable in Bethlehem and he lived the life that we should have lived. He lived for us. And his life utterly and completely pleased God. We know from John 4, Jesus says this, My nourishment, my food is to do the will of my Father. So let me ask you a question, gang. Have you just been hoping and wishing that this whole thing with God just works itself out? Is it more in the category of a wish rather than faith? Are you unsure about what is going to happen after death? Not because you don't believe in an afterlife, but because you're not sure of where you stand with God? Why don't you just respond to the gospel? Say yes. There was a guy in my office literally a week ago. We walked through the Roman road and he was like, are you kidding me? That's it? I just have to put my confidence in Jesus? Yeah. Yes. That was his answer, okay? That could be your answer today. Yes. Let me ask another question. Has your love for God grown dim or cold over the years? Here's what I know. May I suggest to you that you will never, 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 never outgrow your need for the gospel. You don't get into the kingdom of God through the gospel and then get strong on your own effort. It doesn't work that way. So here's where your rocks came in. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a moment. And you were given a rock when you came in. And it's a way to physically respond to the word of God today. And they're going to put four different types of responses. A couple, one of them might be really simply, you know what? No, not now. Don't believe, I can't trust. It's not in me. Just tuck that rock in your pocket. For some of you, it's a, I'm open. I want to, but I, I just can't, not yet. Slip it in your pocket. For some of you, you've caught on to the whole idea, oh, Jesus is king. You know what? In 2016, I want to let him lead in my life. If that's the case, then put your rock here in this uh, box before or after you take communion as an act of faith of, in 2016, I will let Jesus lead. For some of you, it might be the simple thing of, are you kidding me? That's how it works. It's not based on my performance. Yes! Put your rock in there. But do me a favor, tell somebody before you go. Right? I want to pray for you and pray for me. But before we do that, I want to remind you that outside those doors... Outside those doors right now is a city and a nation full of people who absolutely are convinced that what, the way it works with God is performance. You want A's in school? You've got to work hard. You've got to be smart. No one's going to give you a free lunch. You've got to hustle. You've got to bring your A game. You've got to earn it. Nobody's going to give anything to you. You've got to take what you want. That's the message culture gives. It flies in the face of the gospel. Some people look at us in the church and they say, well, you're, you're not perfect. You know, I saw a crapitude in you just three weeks ago. 
You know what? That whole stuff, you're a beloved son, beloved daughter of the king. You didn't earn that. You're absolutely right. I didn't. And that's tremendously good news. This Christmas and always, Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. Can I 